everyone, my name's Tim McDonald and you're listening to me on Above and Beyond. Hi all, it's Mike Myers with another episode of Above and Beyond, brought to you by the Reengineering Australia Foundation. We strive to engage, inspire and educate students, teachers and industry about the value of career pathways that exist in the fields of science, technology, engineering and maths. We're driving to create the next generation of innovators who will build Australia's economic future. But to achieve this goal, it's essential to have students engage with industry as much as possible before leaving school, both as a method of building their career knowledge and to simplify the transition to the world of work. Transition should be driven by the passions and skills of the students, rather than being somewhat random and last-minute decision process. Our guest today is the deepest diving Australian ever. His career journey has only just begun, but can be described as remarkable. Tim McDonald completed his maritime engineering degree at the Australian Maritime College at the University of Tasmania. He was part of the design and build team for the submersible vehicles. He's now the engineering and operations leader for the Caladan Oceanics Underwater Operations. We'll talk to him shortly about that. Some of his highlights include being a submersible integration engineer on the Five Deeps Expedition, which visited the deepest oceans on the planet. He's walked the Namibian Desert and visited the Slavabad Islands, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, in the Antarctic Circle. And he's also visited the Titanic, which I think is really cool. And while I've read uh, his bio, I'm looking forward to hearing some more about these amazing places and journeys he's been on. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I thought if we start with a bit of your education, because a lot of our audience is students. You grew up in Shoal Bay, New South Wales. For the audience, I know where it is, but where is Shoal Bay and what's it like to live there? Shoal Bay is about 200 kilometres north of Sydney, about three hours' drive on the highway. And it's a little coastal town, very tourism-driven. Myself and all my friends growing up there were definitely in and around the ocean, always surfing and diving. If we weren't at school, you'd find us in, in the ocean. When I learned to dive, it was in um, Nelson Bay and Shoal Bay. And being an engineer, a mate of mine who was teaching me said, oh, you know about Pascal's principle and you, you're a good swimmer. So the first dive, I'll just go down 80 feet and see what it's like. So it was absolutely fantastic <laughs> diving. beautiful there, yeah. I worked as a dive instructor in Nelson Bay for a couple of years after high school. Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. We just had to be cautious about the currents when we got too far out into the channel. It does get pretty dangerous there, yeah. So why did you end up at UTAS or at the Australian Maritime College? What, what was it that inspired you? It would probably be the dive shop I was working at growing up around the water. Working at the dive shop, I started to get involved in a bit more of the technical aspects, servicing scuba regulators, driving boats, working on boats, and I always had a bit of a aptitude for engineering. My father's a engineer, and I I think looking back, he kind of groomed me to be an engineer as I was growing up, always asking me why things were the way they were and how did they work. And I just kind of mated that with the marine industry. And the Australian Maritime College was the obvious choice. At that time, it was the only place in Australia that was offering maritime engineering degrees. And they're definitely the, the specialists in Australia with lots of uh, infrastructure and some really, really cool, interesting facilities. So you get a lot of hands-on training that complemented the, the theory. 
probably had a vision for wanting to go and do this stuff, but now that you've been through the process, is there so much more about it that you've learned along the way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many jobs out there that you'd never even think existed, like a submersible pilot. I never even knew that was an option. I always was very interested in ROVs and AUVs and the Maritime College. A lot of their students went to oil and gas, and obviously that's mainly ROVs which is a remote operated vehicle, which is a work like a little robot that works underwater. And then I started trying to make my way into that industry and I got a job on a little research ship and found out about research and deep sea research and using underwater vehicles for scientific purposes. And that really jumped out to me. If I can go back to, to school, because I think it's important for kids to understand this uh... What were your favourite subjects and what were the ones that you hated when you were at school, not now? My favourite subjects were metals and engineering because there was a lot of, there was, if you were interested enough, there was a lot of technical aspect to it. But then that was, that information got applied straight away in the subject. The other one was engineering studies, which was a more, a very broad subject about engineering practices and physics. But again, that was, a very applied subject. Subjects I hated. I don't want to say I hated anyone, any particular subject, but I would have to say, ironically, as an engineer, maths and physics, just because I knew they were very important and very applicable. I like to understand how things work, and I find sometimes in maths and physics, you just have to re- repetition, 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 to all of a sudden you start seeing these patterns emerge. And I think in high school, I didn't really have the uh, the patience for that repetition. So I found it very frustrating. Now that you've been in the job, one might say that you, you understand the value of them more than you did then. When I went to university, I definitely started understanding the value. And had I spent a bit more time at high school, then it would have made my university life less painful. And I would have started enjoy it. At the end, by the end of it, I did enjoy those subjects, but it was a lot more painful than it needed to be. Technically, what branch of engineering did you undertake? I did a course called Marine and Offshore Systems. Most people would understand it as a systems engineering degree, so getting systems to to work together, so not necessarily designing mechanical parts or not necessarily designing electrical parts or air conditioning systems or fluid systems, but making sure that all those those individual systems could be integrated together into one big system. And it was very, it was applied to the marine industry. Is that fundamentally a branch of mechanical engineering or is it considered to stand alone now? I think, yeah, systems engineering now is definitely its own, its own discipline. So studying in Tasmania, what was, the, what was the work-life balance like in Tasmania? It's such a beautiful environment down there. Yeah, very beautiful. I think any, the biggest change for my work-life environment was moving somewhere totally new which took quite a while. I wasn't, I don't think I was ready for the cultural shock of becoming an adult and moving to a totally new town with totally new people. But the nice thing about the AMC is that because it is one of the only places in Australia you can study these maritime degrees, that a lot of the students were from interstate. So there was very few people that went there that were local. So everyone formed really good bonds really quickly and it made the, made the integration to university life a lot quicker and we all were keen to get out and go fishing and go hiking and go camping and really explore all of Tasmania. There's so many, so much diversity there. It's amazing. 
So outside of uh, your deep diving life and hours, it might be called, it sounds like you're an explorer. You've been lots of places as well. Where were some of the places that you've been that have been really interesting and, and which ones of those really stick in your mind? I would say the most unusual place for being just so different to everywhere else will be Svalbard in the Arctic. It was just 24 hours of daylight and it could just change in an instant. It could be rocky mountains and then the next day overnight it would it would snow and everything would be white and then you'd have crystal clear days with not a breath of wind and then six hours later it's blowing 100 kilometres an hour and just absolute chaos. Whereabouts are those islands, just to position them for everybody? They're in the Arctic Circle, and they are just west, northwest of Norway, so in between the UK and Norway, and then much further north, up in the Arctic Circle. Many people live there at all? or There is a very small community of people that live there all year round. They spend the four months of darkness living there, and then summertime, they have a lot of people come in for conservation and tourism. But I have been very lucky, yeah, been managed to, well, the five deeps expedition, I've been to every ocean in the world and been to all the continents except for Antarctica and been very fortunate to travel and experience a lot of different cultures and places with my job. So what is the five deeps expedition? What does it entail? The five deeps expedition was a brainchild of a US millionaire. And he was a bit of an ex- he is a, an explorer, and he had climbed the tallest mountain on every continent, and was kind of looking for what the next big thing was. And he realised that no one had dove to the bottom, to the deepest part of every ocean. And in fact, we didn't even know as a human race where the deepest part of every ocean was. It was still with the information on hand from satellite scans that there was a lot of contention, especially in the Indian Ocean. Even with the Pacific Ocean, with the, which is the deepest parts of the world, there was still a small chance that we had it wrong and the Marianas Trench was not even the deepest part. So we went and um, mapped all these deep trenches in each ocean and then we dove our unmanned vehicle and our manned vehicle to the bottom of each trench. And what started out as a bit of an exploration and a bit of a personal goal morphed into this huge scientific achievement and this huge scientific expedition of significance. So when you go down deep here, so I'm picking up on some stuff here, when you're mapping these holes, how are you physically mapping them? From the surface or do you map them from the deep? From the surface, yep. So we have a have a what the, what's called a gondola. So it's just a, a big structure that's welded onto the underside of the ship and it holds the instrumentation and it just sends down sound waves that reflect off the seafloor and come back. And the one that we have on stored is the biggest, best, newest sonar in the world and it's the most accurate. It still has its inaccuracies, but the biggest thing about this ship and the way that we operate is that most other sonars, they they estimate the speed of sound through the water, which obviously affects because it uses sound waves to go down and come back. And when they estimate the speed sound, it creates error in the information that's coming back. So what we can do is we put our underwater vehicles the whole way to the seafloor and bring them the whole way back. So we don't have to estimate the sound, the speed of sound. We know what it is from the instrumentation we have on these pieces of equipment. So it makes our mapping a lot more accurate. I would have the sound obviously would be impacted by the different layers in the water and the temperatures as it goes down. You, you're able to handle all of that by using frequency or... 
No, we it gets post-processed. So the instrument, we send an underwater vehicle down, it goes down, collects data, and we use that data to feed into the sonar and the data that the sonar is collected and it processes it to account for the differences in sound speed through the different layers, which is affected, like you're right, you're saying temperature, the salinity, so how much salt is in the water and the pressure are all factors on the density of the water and how fast sound travels through water. So how many places did you get to go down? Is it something that you got to do or did you stay on the surface as an, as an engineer? No, yeah, well, we're the supporting team. So, I mean, we had 40 personnel on the ship during expeditions to support the submersible and the vehicles and the sonar. And for the five deeps, and last year, I was an engineer and a technician and a safety diver. And then earlier this year, I just got certified to be one of the three pilots for this submarine. And, and this year, I managed to get a couple of dives in, one of which, as you mentioned earlier, was to the deepest part of the world's oceans. Luckily enough, made me the deepest diving Australian. And then I've also done one to the Philippine Trench, which is the second deepest trench in the world. And that was the first manned descent into that trench too. So is the Mariana Trench still the deepest or is there somewhere else now? No, the Mariana's Trench is the deepest. There was a little bit, there was a, still a bit of uncertainty. There's a trench in Tonga called the Tonga Trench, and the deep there is 10,800 metres, and the Mariana's Trench is 10,925. The equipment they used to map the Tonga Trench had an error that overlapped with the Mariana's Trench, so there was a very small likelihood that the Tonga Trench was actually deeper. But we, after we went to the Mariana's, we went to Tonga and surveyed that and dove it and, and confirmed that its depth was 10,800. So how deep did you go? In your dive? Last week, I did 10,925 metres. So whereabouts did you do that? Nearly 11 kilometres. In the Mariana Trench or...? Yeah, that was in the Challenger Deep in the Mariana's Trench. Some of these trenches are thousands of nautical miles long. In each trench, they have little depressions that they call uh, deeps. So like in the Mariana's Trench, you have the Challenger Deep, you have Serena Deep, you have Nero Deep. All of these are... 10,000, 10,500, 10,900. They're all still really deep in the Mariana's Trench, but the deepest one in the Mariana's Trench and, in fact, the world is the Challenger Deep, which is where I dove last week. So do you get – I'm asking some simple questions here, but do you get to see anything? Is it how, how dark or are there things down there that are worth looking at? For our dive in particular, the biggest takeaway was we found some new geological – features that hadn't been described in the Marianas Trench. In the trench, you have two tectonic plates. The trenches are formed by one tectonic plate, which is heavier. In this case, it's the Pacific plate, and it's going underneath the Philippine plate. And where those two plates meet, they create a depression. And the big, heavy Pacific plate is compressing the Philippine plate, and it's pushing up all these deposits and these this water that is full of sulfur so we're finding these sulfur deposits on this wall and this is particularly interesting because there's been documented and we're well it's it's from the video footage where it is predicted and it's been shown elsewhere that these sulfur deposits have bacteria growing on them so you get these sulfur feeding based life forms which are growing and existing at extreme pressures in no daylight and this is interesting from a geological standpoint but also for astrobiologists because they're trying to figure out whether life is is possible in these other planets and especially planets with 
oceans that exist and sulfur feeding bacteria might be a good indication for them about how life might exist on other planets. My perception is that preparing to go so deep would take a big effort and I sense and a lot of planning are no different from what you might have to do if you're going to the moon or to Mars. Is that a fair comment? I'd agree with that. Maybe not to Mars, just because of the duration. We spend a couple of weeks at sea. You know, we maybe spend five weeks to five days to two or three weeks getting to a dive site, which is probably more in appropriately matched to the moon. But once we get out here, we're totally self-sufficient. We have to carry all our own spares. We have to be able to repair any any failures. And then also the submersible is just going into these extreme environments. You know, when you spend a, send a space shuttle to outer space, it starts at one atmosphere and goes to zero atmospheres. So it has a, a change of one atmosphere where we're starting at one atmosphere and we're going to 1,100 atmospheres. So we've got over a 1,000 times atmospheric pressure pushing down on, on this vehicle, which just creates a huge amount of stress on all the components. I and mean, then you have to come up with some really unique, and you just have to be persistent with, with the way you deal with problems. You try something that doesn't work, or you have to send it to a chamber and you you send it to a pressure chamber and it consistently gets pressure cycled to see if it's going to fail or not. Every single piece of equipment that goes on the sub has to be go under a lot of testing and a lot of trial and error. How long are you actually on a dive? What's a lo- how long does it take to get to the bottom and back again? Anywhere from 12 to 14 hours, depending on how long you spend on the bottom. It takes four hours to get down there. Generally, we spend from three to six hours on the bottom and then four hours back up. So is the internal of the, the vehicle pressurised or do you increase the pressure as you go down as well? No, it's just like sitting in an aeroplane. It's actually the pressure changes less than in an aeroplane. We do recycle our oxygen. You know, when the human body, we breathe in 21% oxygen and we breathe out 17%. So we're actually only using 4%. So what we do in the sub is we just, that little bit of oxygen we're using, we just add that in through pure oxygen bottles. And then the body expels that spent oxygen as carbon dioxide. And we have, uh, it's like a limestone material that absorbs carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide and we that takes the carbon dioxide out of the air. So that's how we manage our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. And as for pressure, the sub inside the sphere, it stays at one atmosphere. We don't increase the pressure or decrease the pressure. Um, the only thing that changes the pressure is temperature. When we leave the surface inside the sphere is maybe, when we're in the tropics, it's probably about 30 degrees Celsius, just because that's the water temperature. And once you get to 1,000 metres, the sea temperature is about 2 degrees, and it'll stay between 2 and 4 degrees for the whole dive. So inside the sub, by the end of the dive, after 12 hours in 2-degree water, the inside of the sphere will be about 2 two to 4 degrees. So that temperature change makes the air expand and contract a little bit, but that's it. When you're on a dive, there's one or two people in the boat, in the submarine, sorry? Yeah, there's two. There's a pilot and a passenger. Or if you're doing a technical dive, you might have a co-pilot rather than a passenger. How important is the ergonomics with inside the vessel, that everything's in the right place? What efforts put in to make sure things are right? There's a lot that goes into it. This sub was a little bit hamstrung on the size of the sphere. So the ergonomics played a, a huge part because they were they were given the size of the sphere, which was decided because the only testing chamber big enough and had 
rated to a high enough pressure had a had a diameter of 1.9 meters so the sphere could only be 1.9 meters in diameter so they were already constrained the design engineers on how on how they could lay out the sub and obviously you can't change what you need in the sub so you have you have a certain amount of components so to fit all that into that tiny little sphere meant there had to be a lot of thought about where things were placed how you could reach them your view i mean the the sphere is actually two hemispheres put together where the hemisphere is split is actually on an angle you would think it would be on on the horizontal but due to the ergonomics of where the hatch is and where the viewports are to make sure they were centered in each of the hemispheres for to remove stress concentrations they had to split the sphere on an angle there's lots of very unique design restraints that created some very out-of-the-box thinking curveball question does the gravity change when you get closer to the center um do you feel any know the answer to that question i don't believe so it changes it changes where we are on the planet which we take into consideration when we are doing our ballasting calculations so we have to calculate how much weight the sub needs to carry to get to the bottom and the latitude and longitude of the where we're diving on the planet will make a difference so we actually do take gravity into account i gather you've been involved in the design process how complex is that to design a deep dive vehicle the design engineer at triton is a bit of a boy wizard he he can make a very complex problem have a, of a simple solution so it was pretty amazing to work under him and you'd have these really complex problems and you were thinking of all these convoluted ways to get around it but the best way to overcome a complex problem is normally with a simple solution but coming up with that simple solution is a lot more it's a lot harder than probably what people think so the windows in this vehicle how how are they what are they made of and how how are they assembled they're made of acrylic so they're 220 millimetres thick and they're in the shape of a cone, like a big plug. So the viewports have a big housing, like big titanium housing, which goes into a hole in the sphere. And then that housing has a hole which fits the viewport. And it was, it's actually quite interesting because the acrylic deforms at a different rate than the titanium. And obviously because of the different shapes and the different geometry between the sphere and the housing and the viewport itself, um, they all deform at different rates. So when the sub is at the surface, on the inside of the sub, there's actually about a two or three millimeter gap between the hull and the acrylic viewport. You can see down that there's a gap. And it's a little bit unnerving, but that's there so that when you get to pressure and the force pushes the viewport further in and deforms, that that gap will totally get taken up so it doesn't create any stress points. and just creates a nice ceiling surface. And all the ceiling surfaces are actually what we call a dynamic dynamic seal so that it's a face-on-face -face seal and they move with they move as the sub ascends and descends so the hatch is also a conical shape and when it goes into place we have an o-ring that seals it just for low pressure and once you get to a couple of hundred meters that o-ring stops having any play in the seal and it's just the metal on metal surface and as the sub gets deeper and deeper and deeper this the hatch will actually get pushed further and further into the, the hatch opening and slides on these two perfectly machined titanium faces which create the seal. Working with titanium previously is that it, it tends to creep over time. We were doing it for race car components and 
it tends to creep. So, so does the body of this thing have a problem? Does it have a life a cycle that you then have to throw it out after so many cycles? Viewports have a life cycle. That's based on the testing that we've done. But the submersible itself, one interesting point is that we have to dive below 4,000 metres before it's actually considered a pressure cycle. As for the creep in the titanium, there was designed in such a way that it's so overkill that creep is not actually a factor for the lifespan of the sub. You know, we're talking thousands and thousands of cycles, so it's just not probably not realistic that the sub will ever do thousands and thousands and thousands of cycles below 4,000 metres, just operationally. We're talking probably 100 years, 200 years of operations to get to that point. I would imagine it's so thick. I mean, we were working on race car parts. They had to be so thin. That was half the problem the Titan would creep because mm-hmm. it was they had thin and thick areas and yep. they would work against we, each other. And we have to deal with quite large uh, factors of safety because we've got people inside, so the safety factors are, are really high in the design, which is set by – the sub is commercially certified by an independent party and they set the – the safety factors and design requirements that we had to meet. So if something goes wrong, how quickly can you get back out or get back up to the surface? Not that quick. Are there systems to help you survive then from deep down? We have redundancies for all the life, life support equipment. So we have weights that we drop to get to the surface. So if the weights for some reason don't drop, we can eject the batteries which will give us enough buoyancy to get back to the surface. Anything that proves an entanglement hazard, like the thrusters, the propellers that drive the submarine, if they suck up a, a rope that's attached to the seafloor, we can jettison the thrusters and get out of entanglement. Same with the manipulator arm. If it gets the manipulator arm is a little robotic arm on the front that we can use to pick up samples and interact with the environment, that got caught up with anything, then... We can eject that inside the sphere. We have redundant systems for power. So we have port side, the left side of the sphere, and the right-hand side of the sphere have two totally mirror-imaged electrical distribution boards, and they can power each other. We have ways to scrub out carbon dioxide and ways to add oxygen into the into the sub that doesn't require power. We have a dead man switch. So if you stop communicating with the surface, every 15 minutes we communicate with the surface. And if you don't do that, it'll set off an alarm. And after five minutes of the alarm going off, it'll drop all your weights and bring you back to the surface just in case the passengers become incapacitated somehow. We've got spare breathing devices in there if we had fire or contaminated atmosphere we can breathe on contained breathing devices for long enough to get us back to the surface for the four hour trip back to the surface this sounds like learning to fly a jumbo jet the amount of systems that would be in there in place that you have to understand yeah there's a lot there's a lot of individually the systems are quite simplistic there's just a lot of them and because there's no one to come and rescue you below 6,000 meters there's no other vehicles out there in the world that would be able to get on site quick enough that could rescue you you have to be totally self-sufficient and be so we call it a self-rescue to be able to rescue yourself so you're not tethered to the surface in any way no totally independent to the surface yeah so the communication there must be low-frequency radio waves and things between you and the surface? Low-frequency sound waves. 
So we use a, an acoustic, acoustic modem. It's amazing that we can communicate. We can communicate with the sub 20 kilometers away underwater, which is pretty amazing. But compared to radio, like a VHF radio even, or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or communicating to a satellite, it's far more complicated and far less advanced the uh, the sound waves are so are so low, you know, we're we're talking kilohertz, so hertz times a thousand. Where radio waves, you're talking gigahertz, which is hertz times a billion. So the frequency that we have to carry information on is much lower. So you can only transfer very small data packages. Yeah, we had with Substance Schools, we originally started off having the submarines driven by a low-frequency radio controller, and they don't make them anymore. Mm-hmm. They, only oh, have, yeah. they only have 27 megahertz, which is um, the frequency of water, so it doesn't penetrate the water at all. But the 40 hertz yeah. or ones would go down about six feet, I think, the ones that kids were using. I can't remember what the frequency we're operating on. To cover all those temperatures and pressures, it would probably be very low, amazingly low. And amazingly, you can hear mammals. I mean, we've had our dive ops interrupted by pilot whales when we're diving the titanic we had pilot whales come up and we just couldn't communicate with the subs because the pilot whales come up and they were all chatting with each other and interested in the noise we were making and we lost communications with the sub because of the pilot whales now now you brought up the titanic that must have been a a remarkable place give us the story of that uh, the journey that what it was like to go and visit the titanic It's a very eerie place. We also, any wreck that you dive where people lost their lives is extremely eerie. We've done three archaeological trips now. The Titanic, which is in the Atlantic Ocean. We did the Minerve, which was a a French submarine that got lost in the 60s. And then we just now, two or three weeks ago, found the main part of the wreckage of the USS Johnson, which is one of the most decorated ships in World War II and the deepest known shipwreck in the world. And I mean, I didn't, I wasn't fortunate enough to do a dive on the Titanic, but just the atmosphere on the ship, knowing that you're hovering above a place where if you'd been there 60 years ago or 100 years ago, you would have seen thousands of people in the water just losing their lives. It was it's very, very eerie. It does have memory from when I was a kid. It was always talked about, and uh, it was a subject of um, engineering discussions at school and stuff. So to go there must have been a really quite impressive thing. Even to be around there would be amazing. It was very impressive. And, I mean, the Titanic, especially as a mariner, the Titanic accident literally reinvented marine safety. The SOLAS Convention, was, which is safety of life at seas, was created in the years after the Titanic disaster. So to know that that disaster has now implemented this safe, safety regulation that keeps us at sea safe is, um, yeah, it's pretty humbling. Where is your short-term future taking? I've heard in your bio you're talking about the Five Rings Fire Expedition. What kinds of things are coming up for you now? Since the end of the Five Deeps expedition, the, our program's really taken a very heavy aspect on science. The whole Five Deeps expedition, its birth was not necessarily science. It was more exploration. But through that exploration, there was a, a, an amazing amount of science done. But now we've been over the Challenger Deep and we've been doing science here in the Marianas Trench. 
and we don't we've been to the philippines shortly after this we're going to australia so next week we leave to do a passage and we're going to do a month of deep diving operations off the west coast of australia out on the continental shelf so technically not in australian waters but all these places have got very australian names like the the wallaby escarpment and it's very nice to be going back home after so many years the last 10 years of being doing all this work in other countries all over the world it's nice to be coming back home and doing some really good work in our own backyard they haven't suggested the mh90 they go hunting for that one yet or it always comes up in conversation we don't have the right equipment to do that i mean we get contacted by people all the time we reckon they know where it is it's a it's a very big ocean and it's a very small plane when it's can compared to the ocean. If, if I can come back to um, a, a motive questions now, if you were talking to yourself uh, back when you started high school, what would be your advice to students about careers and, and finding where you should land? I would say that you need to do what makes you happy because ultimately if you follow something that makes you happy, you're going to work hard at it and you're going to sacrifice and you're going to get enjoyment out of it so much so that you are going to progress even when people are telling you you shouldn't. And when I say you need to do something that you enjoy, that doesn't mean you have to enjoy every day. There's going to be a lot of things that you have to do along the way which are not fun. You're going to have to do a lot of jobs that you don't like doing and learn a lot of things that you're not necessarily interested in. But keeping a general idea of what you're interested in and being flexible with how that idea grows is important. But first and foremost, just follow where you think you would like to be and work work hard at it and have patience. Be patient that it might take five years, 10 years, 15 years for you to, to get somewhere where you want to be. Second question is, uh, why is engineering so interesting? I think engineering so interesting because you just have so many options. There's so many opportunities out there and so many doors that can be opened with engineering. You can do design engineering, you can do maintenance engineering, you can do project management, you can apply engineering skills to economics, to ergonomics, to human elements, there's unlimited possibilities. Number three, what's it like studying at AMC and UTAS? I know you've touched on that as well, but if you were to sell it to students right now, what would be your words that you'd use? I think that the best thing about studying at AMC was the practical application. Nearly every class we got to go and see the theory we were learning applied in a real-world environment just because there's so many different aspects to the Maritime College that they have sea cadets, they have engineering cadets, they have fisheries management, they have so they have all these diesel engines and boats and marine research tanks and wave pools that you get to do all these this theory, but then you actually get to go for the day and see it in action. So what's in your life vision from here on in? I've been asking myself that for the last week. Now I've gone to the bottom of the ocean at 30 years old. I've still got a very long career ahead of me and I don't know what's going to beat that now. You can always try Mars. <laughs> exactly. No, but I think, I think I've really enjoyed the last 10 years of working at sea and being away and, you know, I've sacrificed a lot to get where I am. I've also had a lot of good fun, but I think uh, the next 10 years might look a little bit different, probably slow down a little bit and enjoy enjoy where I'm at rather than trying to push too hard. 
to get much further. I understand where you're coming from. Well, Tim, thanks very much for taking your time to talk to us. I think it's been absolutely wonderful hearing about the things that you've done. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to hearing the next chapter because I think uh, some of the things you've raised there are absolutely fantastic. We may have to have another talk again soon. So, but uh, again, thanks very, very much. Sounds good to me. I think the next next year is going to be very interesting out here. So thank you for having me and... I'm sure we do. Thank you very much. Thank you.